Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, the podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Avi Lope, the author of Extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth. Harvard's top astronomer lays out his controversial theory that our solar system was recently visited by advanced alien technology from a distant star. In late 2017, scientists at a Hawaiian observatory glimpsed an object soaring through our inner solar system, moving so quickly that it could only uh, have come from another star. Avi Lowe, Harvard's top astronomer, showed it was not an asteroid. It was moving too fast along a strange orbit and left no trail of gas or debris in its wake. There was only one conceivable explanation. The object was a piece of advanced technology created by a distant alien civilization. In Extraterrestrial, Lowe takes readers inside the thrilling story of the first interstellar visitor to be spotted in our solar system. He outlines his controversial theory and its profound implications for science, for religion, and for the future of our species and our planet. A mind-bending journey through the furthest reaches of science, space-time, and the human imagination, extraterrestrial challenges readers to aim for the stars and to think critically about what's out there, no matter how strange it seems. Well, Professor Lopp, Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here today. So as we're living through the unprecedented, uh, unprecedented times during the pandemic, could you uh, tell us how has it affected you and your work? Well, I should say that um, since the pandemic started, I uh, went out jogging every morning at 5 a.m. in the company of uh, ducks, birds and uh, wild turkeys and uh, rabbits and uh, I found it very relaxing to be embedded in nature and not having to rush uh, commuting to work. And uh, for my creative work, it has been a very productive period, uh, perhaps the most productive in my career, uh, since uh, I didn't have to attend to visitors that uh, enter my office uh, without warning. And uh, basically, I had time uh, for myself to, to write papers, scientific papers, and also commentaries, uh, many of which I published in Scientific American. So altogether, it has been, as far as I'm concerned, I know that this is not typical, but it has been a very uh, productive time uh, for creative work. And uh, of course, I look uh, forward to uh, coming back to campus. Uh, We are not allowed to go back yet, Uh, but the in-person interactions with students and uh, senior uh, colleagues, of course, uh, 
you know, is is uh, at this point not available, and uh, I sort of miss it in some sense. But uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, my um, uh, inner. Uh, world and uh, my creative work, it had been a, a very productive time. Interesting. Uh, and as you were quite proactive uh, during, uh, obviously, d- during normal times, didn't you feel any withdrawal uh, f- symptoms of the stimulation that you usually get day to day? No, uh, because uh, often I'm guided by my inner compass and by I, I have ideas all the time. It's just that the events that take place during the day uh, often uh, do not allow me to focus on my ideas. Uh, so uh, not having the interruptions allowed me to pursue the ideas that just pop up uh, in my head uh, uh, all the time, continuously. Um, so, um, in a way, uh, the lack of interrupt- interruption is uh, a blessing as far as I'm concerned. But uh, I also feel um, an obligation to serve the community. And, you know, I've been in many leadership uh, positions. Uh, I've been the longest serving chair of the astronomy department at Harvard, nine years. And I serve as the chair of many committees. And, of course, uh, that takes uh, part of my time and, and takes a tax on, on my creative work, but I do feel that it's extremely important because uh, early on in my career, I thought, you know, other people can uh, take over these leadership positions and I can focus on my research and that's what I enjoy doing. But then I realized that they are not necessarily following uh, the, the appropriate uh, principles and and they're not very effective sometimes, the, the leaders that I witnessed. And uh, so I felt an obligation to serve. And I think it's extremely important because uh, if you're able to uh, move the community around you in the right direction, uh, it serves a bigger purpose. But um, selfishly, from my own perspective, of course, I would like to have all the time in the world uh, for my creative work. Uh, do you also teach? Uh, yes, um, I teach uh, a freshman uh, seminar this semester. And just uh, in the last class, I should tell you an anecdote. Uh, I was asking uh, my uh, students if uh, uh, they are aware of the fact that um, most of the stars, other than the sun, uh, emit infrared radiation because they are much smaller than the sun. And so if they have any creatures next to them, living creatures, these should have infrared eyes, which must look very different than the eyes we have that are tuned to detect visible light. That's what the sun provides us with. And so I asked them if they know of any animals on Earth that use infrared light, that have infrared eyes. And one of them found an image of a shrimp that has uh, infrared eyes. They look just like two tennis balls connected to the head of the shrimp with uh, cords. And uh, when you look at that image, it does look like an alien. <laughs> so that was <laughs> exactly what I expected, that uh, you know, when, when you find uh, examples of animals that are completely unusual relative to what we, we know, they would look uh, strange and as if they came from outer space. Oh, the world full of mantis shrimp. Yep, I would visit that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this shrimp lives at the bottom of the ocean, so I guess uh, <laughs> it needs uh, infrared vision. And as you know, soldiers uh, also have these goggles that allow them to see at night uh, with infrared vision because the human body is warm enough 
to emit infrared radiation even at night. So we can see humans moving around or any engine that emits heat uh, is also visible at the infrared. And uh, even without the sunlight reflected off objects, if they're warm enough, we can see them. So um, the thing is that if you happen to be a creature born near a star that is a typical star, not like the sun, the sun is unusual, then you would develop infrared eyes. And uh, in fact, that explains perhaps why uh, we don't have uh, many visitors from outer space, because if there are any interstellar tourist agencies, uh, they would never advertise the Earth as a desired destination, because these uh, creatures with infrared eyes, um, they would find visible light uh, irritating, and also all we can offer are uh, green loans in our vacation sites, and they're used to dark red grass. Yeah, that's, so, a, good, that's a great point. Hmm. <laughs> so if we ever want them to visit us, we need to go there and entice them. Uh, it's a much better approach to search for them than to wait for them to come. You know, there is this very famous um, Fermi paradox. Uh, about 70 years ago, Enrico Fermi, a famous physicist, asked them, where is everybody? Why don't we see them? And uh, to me, that's very presumptuous because uh, it's not at all clear that we are sufficiently interesting for anyone to visit us. I think we are ignored. Nobody cares about us. We are just like um, ants on a sidewalk. You know, there are many ants and you never pay attention when you walk down the street to a particular ant. So why would anybody care about us? Uh, there must have been a lot of civilizations like us in the past, you know, over the past uh, few billion years, because the, the sun is a relative latecomer. There were many stars that were born billions of years before the sun. And, you know, it reminds me always of um, when I met uh, my wife. She had a lot of friends that were waiting for Prince Charming on a white horse that will come and make them a marriage proposal. And that, that never happened. So, so I think, you know, it's very presumptuous of us to imagine that we're sufficiently special for anyone to come here. So could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm basically a farm boy. I was born on a farm and uh, used to collect eggs every afternoon during my childhood. Uh, and uh, used to drive a tractor to the hills of the village on weekends and read philosophy books. Uh, I was mostly passionate about uh, the big questions, uh, uh, the meaning of life uh, and other questions that philosophy addresses, and I dreamed of uh, becoming a philosopher later on. But the circumstances didn't really allow me to do that because I was born in Israel and there is an obligatory military service at age 18. And I had basically two options, either to uh, run in the fields with a, a gun attached to my back or to do intellectual work in the context of uh, physics, which is useful for the defense of the country. And so I uh, was recruited to... Uh, a program that allows uh, 20 to 30 young recruits every year to pursue uh, a degree in physics and mathematics and uh, work on projects that might be useful for the defense of the country. And uh, I initiated a program uh, that was supported by the Strategic Defense Initiative, uh, Star Wars, of mm. President uh, Ronald Reagan back in the mid-1980s. Uh, it was the first international project uh, 
to receive uh, funding from the U.S. And it brought me to Washington, D.C. Uh, routinely on a weekly basis uh, for a period of time. And um, as a result, in one of my visits, I went to uh, Princeton, uh, the Institute for Advanced Study, where Albert Einstein used to be a faculty. And uh, I was introduced to Freeman Dyson, who introduced me to John Bacall, an astrophysicist. And uh, that visit ended up uh, uh, producing an offer for a five-year fellowship uh, to go there under the condition that I'll switch to astrophysics. And um, I couldn't turn it down. Uh, it was humbling, and I had to learn the vocabulary of astrophysics from scratch because I, I didn't even know how the sun shines. But um, after about four and a half years, I started learning enough of the field to create my own projects in it. And then I was offered a junior faculty position at Harvard. Again, I couldn't turn that down. I was tenured three years later. And at that point, I realized that even though my uh, marriage with uh, astrophysics was arranged, I'm actually married to my true love because there are uh, philosophical problems that uh, we can address in astrophysics using the scientific method. And it's actually very fulfilling to do that. Uh, uh, it's much better to find answers using the scientific tools to some of these questions, like how did the universe start? Uh, you know, when did life start in the universe? And uh, are we alone or are we the smartest kid on the block? You know, these are the kind of questions that I addressed uh, in my latest book, Extraterrestrial. So how did you come to writing this book? Uh, well, um, I started uh, thinking a lot about the origins uh, of life and uh, whether we are alone. Uh, over the past few years, after um, the first object from outside the solar system was discovered. It's sort of like finding an object from the, the street in your backyard. And then you, you expect that the object would look like everything else you've seen in your backyard before. Uh, but it so happened that this object that we found in October 2017, which was given the name Oumuamua, uh, because it was mm -hmm. discovered by a telescope in Hawaii, uh, and, and Oumuamua means a scout in the Hawaiian language. Uh, that object did not look anything like we have seen before in the solar system. And the more data we got about it, the more peculiar it looked. So I was willing to contemplate the possibility that it might be artificial because it had a lot of strange properties, which, which I summarize in my book. And, you know, the way I approach science is, just like a kid, I mean, I, I'm not worried so much about my image. I don't care about how many likes I have on Twitter. I, I just try to understand what, what it means, you know, and I'm actually thrilled when nature offers us something unusual. Uh, many of my colleagues are upset about it. You know, the, I remember a, a seminar at the Harvard in which more uh, more was dis discussed, and when, uh, when it was over and we left the, the room, a colleague of mine that worked on rocks from the solar system said, Oumuamua is so strange, I wish it never existed. And uh, to me, that was appalling because you should actually be happy when nature shows you something that doesn't quite line up with what you expected. It's an opportunity to learn something new. You know, that's how kids learn. They, 
They see new things and they're willing to take risks in explaining them, in figuring them out. You know, and you put some skin in the game, obviously. I mean, kids get bruised. So in a way, you asked me about my childhood. I view science as a continuation of my childhood curiosity. And frankly, I don't really care, you know, what people think about me suggesting something or not suggesting something. That really doesn't matter. You know, nature is whatever it is. You know, these philosophers in the days of Galileo Galilei, you know, they refused to look through his telescope uh, because they said that they know that the sun moves around the earth. So they didn't look at the evidence that nature provided them, and they maintained their ignorance. But reality doesn't really care whether we ignore it. You know, the earth continued to move around the sun. And who cares what humans are telling each other? You know, that's really irrelevant. Uh, So as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's not about us. (laughs) It's about nature. And we are supposed to figure out what nature is, and that's exciting. You know, science is not supposed to be boring, and it's not supposed to be a pedestal where if someone is a scientist, that's an occupation of the elite, you know, something that the public is not supposed to understand. Not at all. It's something that everyone can understand. It's, th- it's something that you're not supposed to think about yourself when you're doing it. Uh, and why not, you know, be honest, straightforward, and not worry about our image? That's not the issue at all. And that's the way I approach it. So when Oumuamua was discovered, I contemplated an artificial origin, and then I got a lot of pushback. And that didn't convince me a bit uh, about the subject because it showed a lot of anomalies. So, you know, just like basketball uh, players, I keep my eyes on the ball, not on the audience. And uh, then I wrote the book. After that, uh, there was actually a literary agent, uh, several literary agents that approached me, and I dismissed the idea. And then one of them insisted, and she convinced me. I said, okay, I'll, I'll write it up. Uh, so I wrote this book uh, and I told the publisher that, you know, I'm writing it up uh, with the hope that at least one person that reads the book may decide to become a scientist after reading it. And as it turns out, uh, just a few weeks ago, I got an email from uh, Malawi in Africa from a woman that read the book and said, you know, the book is great and I'm contemplating becoming an astronomer. And I said, Mm. I told her the story about my dialogue with the publisher. And I said, are you that person (laughs) that will become a scientist as a result of reading my book? And she said, maybe, you know, so that already made my day. And uh, I'm already satisfied because I know that there is at least one person that this book affected. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So you mentioned uh, on the discovery of Oumuamua. Uh, with your Hawaiian uh, telescopes. So can you maybe tell us a bit more on the science part of what we know, how we actually detected it? Right. So um, the Panstars telescope in Hawaii was designed for the purpose of finding near-Earth objects. These are uh, objects that could come very close to Earth and, and in principle, endanger us. Uh, You know that the dinosaurs were killed uh, 66 million years ago when a giant rock the size of uh, Manhattan Island hit the ground. Uh, Hmm. they They were enjoying eating grass and they didn't worry about astronomy. They had huge bodies and were very uh, dominant uh, relative to their environment uh, and probably very arrogant in their attitude. But then, uh, this giant rock came came along and they were they died and three quarters of the life forms on Earth uh, were went extinct. Uh, 
humans are much smaller in body size, but we have the human brain, and that allows us to design telescopes that can warn us about incoming rocks. And uh, that seems to be much more effective at survival because we can nudge away uh, rocks that endanger us. Uh, so we will not share the fate of the dinosaurs. So Congress in the U.S. Um, uh, asked NASA to find uh, 90, 90% of all the rocks that are bigger than 140 meters that come close to Earth. And as the first part of this search, uh, pan stars started serving the sky. Uh, and, uh, of course, in, in, in less than three years, there would be a, a much more sensitive telescope that will continue that task. It's called the Vera Rubin Observatory in Chile. And it's supposed to find 60% of all the objects bigger than 140 meters that could hit the Earth. That's uh, good so, to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, PanStars uh, surveyed the sky and after a few years found the very first object from outside the solar system. Uh, that we've ever seen. Uh, we couldn't see it before because there was no telescope as capable serving the sky. And that, that object is roughly that size of 100, 200 meters, uh, reflecting sunlight uh, from within the orbit of the Earth around the sun. And uh, we knew that it came from outside the solar system because it was moving too fast uh, to be bound to the sun. So it was really the very first object that we found near us from outside the solar system. And at first, astronomers thought, oh, it must be a comet or an asteroid, the type of objects we've seen before from the solar system, a rock. Uh, a comet is a rock covered with ice. So when it gets close to the sun, the, the ice uh, warms up and evaporates along with dust. And you see this cometary tail around it. But there was no cometary tail around Oumuamua. So it was definitely not a comet. Uh, and in fact, the Spitzer Space Telescope searched very deeply for any carbon-based molecules or dust and couldn't see anything. So then the astronomers said, okay, well, maybe it's just rock without anything that can evaporate. Uh, and the, the problem with that is, as it was tumbling, the amount of sunlight that was reflected from it changed by a factor of 10. And that's unprecedented. Uh, it implies that the object is at least 10 times longer than it is wide, projected on the sky as it was spinning around. And the best fit to the reflected light was that of a flat object, pancake-shaped, sort of like a piece of paper tumbling in the wind. Uh, so that was very unusual. We never see such uh, variations uh, in, in the rocks that we have seen before. Uh, and then the object uh, exhibited uh, excess push away from the sun, uh, in addition to the attractive force of gravity. There was something pushing it away uh, in a very smooth way uh, with a force that declined inversely with distance squared. And since there was no gas evaporating on, uh, from it, it couldn't be the rocket effect. So the only sense I could make of it was the reflection of sunlight is pushing it, sort of like the reflection of light from a sail uh, that can push, push it. And nature doesn't make sails. Um, there was another object discovered in September 2020 by the same telescope, and it was given the name 2020 SO. And then the astronomers that discovered it realized, oh, this object actually came from Earth. There was a rocket booster that was launched into space in 1966. And uh, 
this object also showed uh, a push away from the sun by reflection of sunlight and also didn't show any cometary tail. And that's understandable because we produce this object. It's artificial and the walls of this object were very thin. So it had a lot of area for its weight and that's why sunlight could push it. Uh, and, and since it shared the qualities of Oumuamua, it's tempting to say that Oumuamua was also artificially produced. The question is, mm -hmm. who produced it? So how did you arrive to this um, big insight, I suppose, uh, that it might be uh, some sort of alien technology? Well, it was uh, by the evidence, uh, by uh, excluding other possibilities to explain all the unusual properties of Oumuamua. And I should say that there are more anomalies, uh, for example, the frame where it came from. Um, only one in 500 stars uh, comes from that kind of a frame. It's called the local standard of rest. Uh, it's the frame you get to when you average over the random motions of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. And so it didn't look like it came from any star, but uh, instead it was just like a buoy sitting at rest in the on the surface of the ocean, and the sun bumped into it uh, like a giant ship. Uh, and uh, that's also extremely unusual. So it had a lot of unusual properties, and... Uh, you know, at first, when the first unusual properties showed up, I, I said, okay, well, maybe it's an unusual object. But then when more and more came along, and, you know, you think about the fact that it's the first object that we discovered, it must be common. How is it possible that the, the first object is one in a trillion, you know, a very rare object? Uh, so when you have six anomalies, each of them has a 1% chance, you multiply these probabilities, you get one in a trillion. And, you know, at some point you ask yourself, is that reasonable, you know? Uh, so I was just driven in this direction from all these anomalies. And, uh, you know, most, most scientists would never contemplate a, an artificial origin because we've never seen anything like it. But my point is simple. Um, all the natural origin interpretations that were given to this uh, object, including a very recent one from last week, there was a suggestion, maybe it's a nitrogen iceberg. Uh, something that we've never seen before. All of the proposals for a natural origin associated Oumuamua with something that we have never seen before. A, a nitrogen iceberg, a hydrogen iceberg, a cloud of dust a hundred times less dense than air, uh, you know, things that we've never seen before. And so my point is simple. Uh, each of these suggestions has a major flow that I, you know, we can discuss. Mm. But, um, my point is, if we contemplate something that we have never seen before, we might as well consider the possibility of an artificial origin. Because, uh, you know, when you walk uh, on the beach and you see a lot of rocks, every now and then you see a plastic bottle. And uh, that indicates that the civilization is around. So we should be open-minded. And obviously the best way to proceed would be to get much more data, much more evidence about the next object that belongs to this class. And since we found this one after a few years of watching the sky, we should definitely find more in the coming years, especially with the Vera Rubin Observatory. We might find one a month. And then, uh, you know, when uh, we find one that approaches us, uh, we can send a spacecraft uh, equipped with a camera that will take a close-up photo of it. And they say a picture is worth a thousand words. 
in my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. So how were your ideas received in the scientific community? <laughs> I should say in the general public, they received uh, with great interest. My book became a bestseller in many countries, and uh, uh, there were of all the 400 interviews that I had to go through over a period of uh, two and a half months around the publication date of my book a couple of months uh, a couple of months ago but um, the scientific uh, community is much much more negative about this possibility people have a problem discussing it uh, which i find problematic because scientists should be open minded especially on a subject that is of such great interest to the public because the public is funding science you know, and we have an obligation to address topics of interest to the public using the scientific method. And that means collecting more evidence. The only reason we might not collect more evidence on future objects that look as weird as Oumuamua is if we assume that we know the answer in advance. If, if we say it's always rocks, it's never aliens, you know, then we resemble a caveman that... Um, when presented with a cell phone, since the caveman is used to playing with rocks all of his life, would ar argue that the cell phone is just a polished rock. So, you know, we, <laughs> we want to believe that science is open-minded. We should act according to that and, and uh, collect more evidence. People often say, oh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. My point is, you would never collect extraordinary evidence if this topic receives no funding and if uh, it's being ridiculed because young people are afraid of pursuing it. So if you close your eyes, you will never see wonderful things. You know? And if you don't fund such a, a, an opportunity, you will never discover anything. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's just like stepping on the grass and saying, look, the grass doesn't grow. So this backlash that you received, was it primarily from senior colleagues? So people who have stakes in science? And no, no. The strange thing is uh, the people that uh, are most opposed to it are those that are uh, less, how should I say, less accomplished scientifically. It, it hmm. goes inversely. Uh, and, um, you know, the way I think of this is... Uh, I remember seeing in the news there was a congressman that um, uh, for many years was making anti-gay statements. And then when uh, he retired, after he retired uh, from his job, uh, uh, at some point he came out of the closet and uh, uh, confessed that he's gay. And, uh, you know, many of these people that express very strong opinions against this idea. Mm. I believe that deep down, <laughs> they're very intrigued by this possibility and they just try to say the opposite. Um, and of course, you know, if you pay attention to the anomalies, you should admit, I mean, there is no doubt about it, that, you know, no matter what the origin of this object is, whether it's natural or whether it's artificial, it doesn't really matter. What we need is more evidence because we will learn something new given the fact that all the explanations talk about something that we've never seen before, you know, we will learn something about the nurseries that make such objects. So it's to our benefit to find more evidence about it in the future. Uh, 
you know, the only reason not to find more evidence, not to collect more data on, on objects of this type in the future would be to maintain our ignorance. And, you know, that would be just like living through the dark ages all over again. I just don't understand those people that claim they know the answer without enough evidence. Why not leave this possibility on the table and be open-minded? You know, why? why uh, so the only way I can interpret that is, um, you know, when I watched my daughters when they were very young, you know, they stayed at home and they thought that they're the smartest mm-hmm. uh, in the world. And then when we took them to the kindergarten, uh, at some point, uh, you know, they saw kids that are smarter than they are. And of course, it was a psychological shock. Uh, if I were to ask them at that point, they would say that they prefer to stay at home and maintain the illusion that they are the smartest in the world. So perhaps, you know, uh, people uh, prefer not to know, you know, prefer to remain ignorant because it uh, threatens their ego in some sense. But that's not the way science operates. Science is supposed to be guided by evidence, supposed to be eager to find the truth. You know, the point is, the more in- scientific information is always good because it helps you plan your, your, your future in a more informed way. Um, uh, f- just to give you another example, in ancient history, uh, you, uh, some people used to argue that the human body has a soul and therefore anatomy should not be allowed. Um, and uh, imagine if scientists would say, you know, the human body is a controversial subject. Some people argue that it has a soul. Others say, no, it's just physical and we should operate it. Imagine if scientists would say, you know, it's a controversial subject. We don't want to deal with it. Just like we don't want to deal with aliens. It's controversial. Where would modern medicine be? The point is that if there is a subject of interest to the public, uh, scientists can clarify this subject, make it clear, make us more informed uh, by using the scientific method, by using the tools they have. Right now, we have the tools to explore the question of, are we alone? Are we the smartest kid on the block? We have those tools that are called telescopes. It's just a question of dedicating telescope time, dedicating funds that we otherwise dedicate to other tasks. To give you another example, you know, nowadays uh, uh, astronomers are searching for the nature of dark matter. This is uh, most of the matter in the universe. It's, it's made of some particles that we don't know their nature, uh, the nature of. And, and so we are trying to find out which particles make most of the matter in the universe. So, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe a billion dollars were dedicated for the search and nothing was found as, as of yet. And that's okay because you take risks in science sometimes you don't find the answer after investing a billion dollars but you can ask how much was invested in the search for technological civilization something we know exists because we exist Mm -hmm. and it's at least a thousand times less uh, federal funding for that so you ask yourself okay well if if we are not investing billion dollar level funding in that search how can we find extraordinary evidence uh, and by the way, this subject is of great interest to the public. If the dark matter is made of axions or weakly interacting massive particles, that would have zero impact on our daily lives. Who cares? But if, the, if, if Oumuamua was a technological relic, that could have a huge impact on society. So how can we shy away from this question? How can we ridicule a discussion on this question 
I think the scientific community right now is exactly in the opposite position to where it should be. So what changes does the scientific establishment need to actually promote investigation of some maybe niche theories? Oh, uh, well, it's very simple. Uh, we just need to search for more evidence. So, for example, uh, we can design uh, a, a space mission that once we detect, let's say, with a Vera Rubin observatory, we detect an object like Oumuamua a year before it approaches us. Then we mm. send a, a spacecraft with a camera that intercepts its uh, trajectory and takes a close-up photo. You know, that's not very expensive. We can do that. Uh, I call it space archaeology, basically figuring out if uh, interstellar objects like Oumuamua that come inside the solar system, you know, it took them a long time to make the journey. It saves us the trip of going to their birth sites. Uh, we can search each and every one of them and take a photograph to see if they are natural or uh, perhaps artificial, you know, just like going on the beach and the checking if, whether you see a plastic bottle among the rocks. You know, that's a very natural thing for us to do, space archaeology. Uh, in the past 70 years, we've been searching for radio signals, but that's like trying to have a phone conversation. You need the counterpart to be alive. And we cannot have a phone conversation with the Mayans, for example. The Mayan culture is gone. Uh, but we find relics from the Mayans in archaeological digs. And that's why we have archaeologists on university campuses. So we should, at the same level of interest, have space archaeologists that search for relics from past civilizations that may not be around anymore in space. Uh, and that's just one example of how you know, we can find, fund such research. But you can also search for industrial pollution in the atmospheres of planets, around other stars. You can search for uh, uh, technological uh, uh, structures uh, on planets. Like, for example, you can search for artificial light on the night side of a planet from cities that might be there. You can search for reflection from photovoltaic cells that cover the day side of a planet. You can search for flashes of light that are associated with uh, light beams uh, from other civilizations, all kinds of searches. And we should have a minimal le level of funding of that, which is comparable to the search for dark matter, I think, if not more, because it's of great importance to our society if we find the answer to this question. And I should say uh, extraordinary uh, conservatism leads to extraordinary ignorance. Oh, can I can I, can you uh, explain that a little bit? That's interesting. <laughs> uh, well, if you are not open to find wonderful things, you will never discover them. If you regard anything new as uh, with suspicion, with hostility, and you always want to stay in your comfort zone uh, in terms of finding things that justify what you already knew then you will never discover new things. Let, let me give you an example. Um, uh, when I visited Mexico and I went to Chichen Itza, where the Mayans uh, used to live, uh, I was told by the tour guide that um, you know, they had a, very, a great interest in astronomy, the Mayans. 
And in fact, astronomers in their society were elevated to the highest social status. They were considered astronomer priests. And you may ask, how is it possible that back then, you know, scientists or astronomers would be regarded so highly, you know, even now, you know, astronomers are, okay, they're part of academia, but not many people care about them. Uh, and mm-hmm. in the Mayan culture, they were at the highest status. And the reason is that politicians, the rulers, uh, thought that the, you can forecast the outcome of wars, for example, based on the uh, positions of planets and, and stars on the sky, sort of astrology. So they believed in that and they wanted to know exactly where Mars would be, let's say, next month, so that they can decide whether to go to wars. Uh, and therefore, they needed the astronomers to tell them the positions of planets and stars so that they can make political decisions. Uh, and for you know <laughs> millennia, they would collect a- a- extremely good data on the sky so that they would be able to forecast the motions of various sources on the sky. Uh, But they used it for the wrong purpose. We now know that politics has nothing to do with stars or planets on the sky. And, uh, you know, those stars and planets move based on the law of gravity, you know, uh, formulated by Isaac Newton. Uh, And uh, it's just that, uh, you know, those astronomers, the Mayan astronomers, did not try to interpret the data they have in this way. And it shows you that good data is not enough. If you have the wrong notion, you're not open to trying to interpret the data in a new way. If you think that the purpose mm-hmm. of the if you, you think that like the purpose of the data is just to forecast the outcome of political decisions, you know, uh, then you will never discover the laws of Newton. So from early on, you were very curious and had early interest in philosophy and also had a quite unconventional pathway of becoming an astrophysicist. So do you think that contributed to to you having more global perspective on things? And how can others maybe strive for it? Well, definitely. I'm not a typical astronomer. And, um, you know, I had to go through a long period of time where uh, I, I felt like fish out of water in a way, because, you know, uh, you have to demonstrate a, a certain level of uh, rigor and uh, focus on uh, narrow topics in order to get tenure in academia in a particular field like astronomy. And uh, you know, of course, the environment was extremely different than a, 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 an environment of philosophers. And so I, I managed to survive that uh, long period of time. And uh, what ended up at the end of it is uh, me being very different than my colleagues and having always looking at the broader view and working on many different topics. And uh I wouldn't recommend that path to everyone because there were many years, you know, <laughs> where it didn't feel comfortable uh, for me. Um, but uh, as I said, it was circumstances and also the fact that I was offered these prestigious uh, positions that I could not turn down. And uh, and now I make the best lemonade out of these lemons, so to speak. Uh but I do think that it's important for scientists, you know, not to, f- I, I was given the advice early on that I should focus in a very narrow niche. I should become the world expert. 
The problem with that uh, advice that I never listened to, I should say, because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a rebel in my uh, personality, uh, you know, I never listened to it because uh, the problem is you get to a bedrock of a subject. Suppose you drill very deep in a narrow niche. Eventually, you get to the bottom of the subject. And although you can make big advances in promoting the subject, uh, at some point in your career, you will be stuck. There will be nothing new to do. And then what happens very often is that you continue to work on nuances to the knowledge that is already available. And it becomes very boring at that point. Of course, you can then decide to uh, make a name for yourself and so repeat the same mantras that you used to say early on and have students and postdocs that echo what you said before. And that is called an echo chamber. And Many scientists are engaged in that, and they try. The, the next goal is to get recognition in the form of prizes, honor societies, and so forth. So you can shift your attention from the actual research to glorifying your image, which many people do after a while. So you know it serves well you, to drill a very narrow path, demonstrate that you are best in the world in doing that, and then start to celebrate your accomplishments through prizes. That's that's the common path that many people take but it becomes boring at that point so who can you know like again the prizes they are so superficial because there is a committee of experts and they just recognize your contributions and you feel honored but it doesn't have any deeper meaning you know it's completely superficial because it's a group of people that decided to honor you and you have to dance by their flute so to speak you have to satisfy their image and the, the, the way that they, you know, their selection criteria. And that makes uh, you a puppet in a way because you need to satisfy other people rather than explore, you know, nature, which is the real duty of a physicist, a scientist. So instead of drilling deep in a narrow niche and getting recognition after that, I find it much more satisfying to have a broader view because then if something doesn't quite work out, in that, if you reach the bedrock, you can move sideways to things that look more interesting. Also, if nature offers you evidence of something unusual, like suppose you discover a new type of object, a new type of source, uh, then you have the imagination to try and explain it using something different than we have seen before. And so that's a great advantage. And you know that the example of Oumuamua is one, but I've had maybe three such cases in my career where other cases where I started the whole field and initially people were rejecting it and dismissing it and ridiculing it, uh, but eventually it became the mainstream. And that's why I have confidence in my path because I've seen it many times before that people would dismiss a subject and then it becomes mainstream. And the young people that enter this mainstream afterwards, they say, what? What do you mean? It's obvious that this should be mainstream. I, I cannot imagine that anyone would object to that. But I witnessed that objection, you know. I, and mm. uh, so, you know, even in, on a subject like gravitational wave astrophysics, you know, that is now celebrated as the frontier uh, and the Nobel Prize was awarded a few years ago. In 2013, I gave a lecture at a winter school to students about it. And then uh, one of the other lecturers, which who was uh, 20 years younger than I am, so it has nothing to do with age, 10 minutes into my talk, he stood up and said, how dare you waste the time of these students on this subject that would clearly be of no interest for them throughout their careers? 
And then two years later, while they were doing their PhD, the same students, uh, the first gravitational wave source was discovered by LIGO, on, for which the Nobel Prize was awarded a few years later. So just to show you how narrow-minded some of the quote-unquote experts are. Yes, and this message of uh, open-mindedness that uh, is really clear in your book, I, also, I think it's also quite widely applicable beyond scientific field, maybe to anybody who is curious and tries to discover things. Yes, I agree. Uh, uh, I see science as a way of life. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the lessons I learn from science apply to many other aspects of life. You know, they can apply to politics, they can apply to social interactions. Uh, the point is that, you know, uh, you should be guided by evidence. That's point number one, uh, mm. and not by your prejudice. You should be open to revising your previous notions of the world because ma many times you are wrong, you know, and, and being wrong is, is not such a bad thing because it shows that you are learning, you know. So admitting that you made a mistake and moving on, uh, you know, embracing the evidence is, is a way of growing up, you know, it's the way kids grow up and the way we learn. Uh, so we should always be humble, modest, and not assume that we know everything and then learn from experience experience and making mistakes is part of that learning so if you apply that to life in general i think you become better and better as time goes on it's sort of like wine that gets better as it ages oh that's an excellent message <laughs> okay so we've taken up a lot of your time so can you tell us what are you currently working on Oh, I, I have a number of uh, exciting projects um, that, um, uh, well, I, I have to finish the calculations because before I would share them with you because there is always the risk that they will not pan out the mm -hmm. way I want them. But um, certainly a few of them will make headlines. <laughs> Excellent. If that culminates in a book, I'm hoping that you come down, to, down here again and speak to us. Well, uh, separately from that, I'm already starting to work on my next book. Yes. Excellent. So where can our listeners find more information about your work, but also the book? Uh, they can put my name in Google, Avi Loeb, uh, and then I have a website um, uh, where uh, there is a listing of my commentaries in Scientific American. Roughly every 10 days or so I have a new one, uh, as well as my scientific papers, uh, as well as my book. Uh, they can access uh, uh, it from, from my website. That's great. Well, thank you very much for coming here today. And it was a real delight. <laughs> thank you, Galina. It was a pleasure speaking with you.